Thank you, Brother Eric. I'm going to come down here with you today. Some of you are sitting too far back for me. So, not y'all. Hey, congratulations. They got engaged. Stand up here, Brother Seth. Isn't this wonderful? Yeah, let's give him a hand, okay? Great. Love y'all. I want you to pray for him. All right, here we go. I want you to turn to Philippians today. Right before COVID hit, I was preaching from Philippians. And I want to go back there at least for a little bit, maybe for a long while. We'll see. And preach some messages from there. Some helpful messages. I love my church when I grew up. We... uh, didn't have any options to attend as a family, but I didn't need to be required to go. We enjoyed going to church. We went all of the time. But there was one service I didn't like, and that was business meetings. The first place, they were boring. Even after I was a kid... Up into my teenage years. But secondly, um, not all of them, but uh, some of our business meetings were like the Wild West. I'm not going to ask you for a show of hands, those of you that uh, grew up in churches that were were like that. But people would uh, offer uh, strong opinions, controversial statements, raised voices. And it was usually by the same personalities. And I can remember asking my my parents at one point. I finally learned that there was a pattern when they had those. And I remember asking them one night, uh, uh, an hour or so before we left, I said, would you mind if, if I didn't go tonight, tonight's business meeting night? Now, I never asked that about any other service, but I did then. Well, I didn't know what was going to happen. It always wasn't like that. But uh, one night, my uh, my pastor resigned at a business meeting. And it was just typically uh, thick with tension. In 1976, I graduated from high school, uh, went off to college. And then I began, I was married in 1979, and then began my, my first occupational ministry. Um, I was serving in 1977 and 1978 in churches, uh, both in Tennessee. And then in 1979, began to serve in the church here in Alabama in an occupational way. And then I think it was 1982, I believe it was in the spring, my, my home church, uh, church split along uh, because of a denominational issue. I won't go into that. And... Uh, some, not all, but some lifetime friends uh, stopped talking to each other. People that sit like you do, sit beside each other, go to life group, and laugh, and care about one another. Now, I don't mean it was all like that, but there were numbers. I can remember uh, being out places, and I would see one of my old Sunday school teachers 
And because uh, everybody knew my, my parents, they, they were leaders. Mom always taught. My dad sang the choir. He was an usher. He was a deacon. And everybody knew me because they knew my father and mother. And so I went to uh, one of my Sunday school teachers that kind of went with the one of the splits. By the way, my parents stayed with the church, and then out of the split, there were, I believe there were, well, I know for sure there were two other churches, if not more, but I know there were two. I'm, I'm, not, <clears throat> I'm not casting blame, I'm just stating a fact to illustrate the message as I begin here. So I, I saw my uh, Sunday school teacher, and I went up, and I called his name. I believe he was in a restaurant after church. And extended my hand. He just looked at me. He wouldn't even shake my hand. And he was my teacher as a little boy. Like I had leprosy. And it, it, so it broke my heart. I, I was with my father. And I saw that happen to him with another person. I uh, was in a restaurant one time. And I said, hey, Dad, there's, there's Brother So-and-so. He said, son, he won't talk to me people you grew up in church with. Now, I'm not saying it was all like that. Uh, even here, not, not very often, but there have been occasions when people were angry or upset, not very many. And I heard about it long, long, long handwritten letters. Took him a long time to write, single space. I can remember uh, we were renovating this auditorium and we were having services over here in the fellowship room. And someone was upset about something in the church and they accosted me. And I, I looked up the word, by the way, and that's exactly what it was. They didn't hit me, but they did accost me. And on the way over there from, from Sunday school, and I said, I'll talk to you. I'll be glad to talk to you after, after the service. And, well, that's, that's a rough way to have to preach. And then they sat in the service. And, you know, that's a really narrow place over there to kind of... And just, boy, if looks could kill, I'd have died that morning. Just harsh and mean. Just hatred just coming out. Um, years ago, I was, I was preaching here and... Someone was upset about something. I'm not even sure what. You know, you try to make peace and so forth. And they sat on the back row. They crossed their arms and just looked up at the ceiling. Wouldn't look at me. Just, I mean, just like breathing fire. They were they were angry with me, and I was I was preaching and so forth. And it, uh, needless to say, it creates attention. In a place where there ought to be peace. Now we're familiar with with church splits, and we would talk about church unity this morning. But the same thing happens to families, and here's what I believe. Here's what I know: that a long time before that happens in a church, it happens in a family. A long time. We we were discussing in, in a video listening to a lesson on bitterness in the family. And uh, there's an excellent video this morning. And how that, uh, you know, people become bitter 
and it's birthed in families. Some homes during the holidays, Thanksgiving and Christmas, uh, children, adult children, don't want to come home. And when they do, it, it becomes tense. The atmosphere is thick. And you feel like you're stepping over people or you're avoiding people. I did some research uh, before this message and I found one uh, study that was done in the States here in America. And this is interesting. They, they questioned 633 middle-aged adults and their children, both of them. So the children and the parents. And they asked them various questions about the relationships. Of the 633 moms and dads and their children, middle-aged, so the children are adults. Um, One-third had little ongoing contact. Very little. They communicated hardly ever. Um, Many considered the relationships conflicted, ambivalent. Only 28%, so about a quarter maybe, said that their family ties were engaged and harmonious. And that kind of, that kind of spiked my interest. And I, I just put in some key words in the search engine, and I, I was surprised, maybe I shouldn't have been, at how many articles were on the Internet along these lines. I'm just going to give you a couple of them. How to get along with your family during the holidays, dealing with conflict over Christmas, etc., 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 and this was something that people are interested in. This this matter of unity uh, is very important. The Bible deals with it. This is passage we're going to look at this morning. Now, <clears throat> the root the root of a lack of unity is selfishness. In fact, we're going to read the passage, but uh, you don't put the verse up there yet, Zach. But look at the last the last word in verse four of Philippians two. It's the word others. Others. And that's what this whole passage is about. And it, and then he uses three examples. He talks about the Lord Jesus Christ. He talks about Timothy and he talks about Epaphroditus in the rest of the chapter. And every one of these men, the Lord Jesus, of course, Timothy and Epaphroditus, each one of those lived for others. And here's what selfishness does. It it causes you to lose a perspective. And the reason you lose a perspective is because selfishness makes you blind. You're blind in your friendships. You're just blind with people. You hurry to the front of the line. Boy, I hope they don't get that piece. Oh, we're going to run out of that pie. And you, you keep score. And you want to make sure you get the best parking place and the best fill in the blank. Whether it's a marriage, your children, your church, selfishness is destructive. It's personally destructive. And it's destructive to your culture, to your environment. Because there, there's not 
and environment of others. Discord, conflict, and all of this, all of this and more, these are symptoms of pride and selfishness. And I want you to get this statement. Listen carefully. Over time, a group that is not united will implode. 100% of the time. Over time. Now, maybe not in the short median, but over time, a group that is not united biblically, we'll look at this in a moment, will implode. Now, the difference in an explosion and an implosion is an explosion goes out, an implosion comes within. The church's greatest enemies are not external, they're, they're internal. The Bible talks about false teachers, but the Bible also talks about people using their tongues. You know, I'd rather, I'd rather have a smoker in the church than a gossip. I'm dead serious. People that cause disunity. Richard Sibbs is one of my favorite writers. He's an old Puritan. But I've never heard this before, but this is a really good quote that he, he wrote in one of his books. Here's what he said. Listen to this. I'm going to say it twice because you have to listen carefully. Richard Sibbs says, Factions always breed fractions. Factions always breed fractions or more divisions. You can't have different small groups. I'm not talking about like we do for edification. But you can't have these little factions without having more divisions. If someone will talk about someone to you, they'll talk about you to someone else. It's true. The Bible gives us the pattern, the means, and the ability to live together in our homes, in our marriages, and in our churches in unity. Now, there's two kinds of unity. There's organizational unity and there's organic unity. Organizational unity is determined by roles, R-O-L-E-S, and charts, organizational charts. Okay, this person goes here, and this is how this is organized, and, and it, it, it's forced somewhat. It, it, it is imposed. It's expected. It's required. And a good word for that would be uniformity. It's external. You go to uh, Wendy's, and everybody wears a uniform, and they have a job description. And there's an organizational chart. There's a manager. There's an owner. There's different people have different roles. But you can have organizational unity and not have organic unity. And here's why it doesn't deal with the heart. You cannot legislate love. You cannot legislate willingness. You cannot legislate patience. You cannot legislate overlooking faults in a marriage or with parents with kids. You can't do it. But then there's organic unity. By the way, there's nothing wrong with organizational unity. You have to have it. 
Paul said he sent Titus to set things in order in the church. In fact, rogue cells are, are cancer cells. But the church is not an organization. It's an organism. Don't ever forget that. Now, it's an organized organism, but it's an organism. There's life. And the difference in organizational unity and organic unity is organic unity is, is natural. There's life there. It is, organic unity is a byproduct of life. It's internal. I want to be here. Well, I had to come to work today. I had to come preach today. I had to come teach today. I got to be here. There's a difference in I have to and I get to. This is organic unity. I love these people. I love Jesus. And I love my church because Jesus gave his blood for it. And these people would do anything in the world for me and I would do anything for them. And that's why I want to be here. It's not because I love the structure. Because I love the people and I love my Savior. Now Paul deals with us in Philippians 2. I want you to look at this. With organic unity, with some incredible words here. We're not going to get to all of them, but I want you to look at this. In Philippians chapter 2, look at verse 1. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, Having the same love, being of, look, look at this, see the united words here, like-minded, same love, one accord, one mind. He's talking about unity. You can't miss this. Let nothing, what does nothing mean? Nothing. Don't, don't do anything through strife or vainglory. Vainglory is, is for pride's sake. Not for God's glory, but for my glory. I hope I get credit for this. I hope people recognize me. Or, or don't do things so that you'll get ahead that's going to cause strife. That's what the disciples did. You know, one of the most heartbreaking things in the Gospels is when Jesus is on the way to Gethsemane to pray. That night, and his disciples are arguing over who the greatest is. And he begins to wash their feet. And nobody washes his. And they're arguing. And it wasn't until they were filled with the Holy Spirit till they kind of got the idea. And by the way, you and I would have been the same way. And we are the same way. We have our turf. Well, you're not going to treat me that way. You're not going to talk to me that way. And we got our back up. And then we lose blessings. Let nothing be done, verse 3, through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind. It's a secret to humility. Let each esteem or value other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. It's so simple. So unity is not uniformity. God made you different than He did me. 
Uh, Phillips Brooks did a lecture on preaching, series of lectures. I think it was when Yale, when Yale was founded as a as a Christian college. You go back and read Harvard, Yale, and Brown, and all the old Ivy League schools. Go back and read their founding documents. They had to get up in the morning, have devotions. Their purpose was to train preachers. And this is before they were bastions of liberalism. And so uh, Phillips Brooks was lecturing at one of the, uh, the seminaries there. And his definition of preaching was this, that preaching is truth delivered through personality. And I like that. Truth delivered through personality. So if I took this section of Scripture, I'm going to preach this, and then I said, Charlie Belcher, I want you to preach next Sunday for me. And he had this. It'd be totally different, but it'd be good because Charlie's a good speaker and he's a man of God. But it'd be different. It'd be the truth, but it's delivered through personality. We are different. We're not to be uniform. Unity is based on internal qualities. These qualities are given to us in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3. Uniformity is expressed by external similarity. You go, you go in, in some places and, and every, everybody's the same. Now I want to be careful about some things because I don't want to be judgmental. So, so please, please give me a little margin here, okay? But people say amen the same way. Now I know there's, you say, well, amen is amen. I know, but sometimes the cadence is the same. And you know, um, Sometimes people are quiet and they just say it in their heart. That's good. People are different. Uniformity is expressed by external similarity. Unity is based on internal qualities. Unity is willing compliancy. Not only to the mission, but to each other. I'm not just in love with the mission... I'm in love with the Lord Jesus Christ, and I love my brothers and sisters. Uniformity is forced compliance based on pressure. I, I heard of churches where they would uh, preach, and, and sometimes in sermons it would come out like this. Now, now I hope, hope it would be done in a humorous way. Now, I hope you all have a good time. Over the holidays, but now remember, uh, you need to be back on Sunday. You need to be back on Sunday, be in your place. Now, you need to be faithful to church. But where, where Bill's kids are, it takes them 10 days to get there. They're driving. I, I'm exaggerating eight days. It takes them a long time to get there. And I've never done that. And I'm not, I'm not good for that. I just don't believe that. It, it's a fear of man issue. Now, you need to be faithful. But, but there, there's a subtle form of, of, of manipulation where people don't. Do you love Christ? Do you, do you love each other? Well, you'll do what's right. I think you will. I, I do. I want to do what's right. I'm not going to need somebody to light a fire up under my bottom to get me what's 
to do what's right. That, by the way, that is a form of motivation, but it only lasts for a while. You do not solve unity problems by rules and threats. A lack of unity is a spiritual problem. If you're not in union, in unity with your spouse, it's a spiritual issue. If you're not getting along with your brothers and sisters, then you ought to. It's a spiritual problem. If you're not getting along with your parents, you're not right with God. If you're not getting along with your kids, you're not right with God. It's a spiritual problem. In churches that don't get along with each other, it's a spiritual problem. The issue is pride, it's selfishness. By the way, I'm not preaching this because I think we need it. It's just a message I pay. I think, well, we, we need to do this. Unity is huge. It's huge. Do you know if Satan cannot have our, our destiny, once you're saved, you're always saved. You're kept forever. But he wants your testimony. And he'll never destroy the church, but he wants to divide the church. And by the way, he doesn't divide the building. He divides people. They begin to question motives. What does she mean? She didn't talk to me this week. What, what is he doing? You no, know, Rick just walked by me. Well, maybe he has a cold. He didn't want to give it to you today. And he's just not wearing a signboard that says, I'm not talking to people. You, you have to learn to give people margin. You have to trust people. Have unity. The source of our unity is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not a What? It's not a flow chart. It's not even the constitution of a church. It's not the church charter. It is a person. It is a who. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how, how do we have these internal qualities? What are, what are they and how do we have them? Let's look at four of them today. Look at verse 1. These are beautiful. Four blessings that God gives to us. And they can be part of your culture. And by the way, let me say this. Even if nobody else in the family, and your family has them, you ought to have them. Even if nobody else in our church has them, and we do. we have a, we, Most of our folks here have this. And when I say most of them, I, I'm just going by a guess. I, I'm not thinking about anybody that doesn't. But the point I'm trying to make is you have a responsibility to put these in your life. Four blessings. Philippians 2. Well, let's read the passage. Did I read it yet? Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1. If thou be therefore, if there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. That's a great little passage to memorize. I encourage you to put them each, each verse on a three by five card and memorize it. Notice in verse one, let's deal with these consolation, comfort, fellowship, and bowels and mercies. What are these? Whether spiritual virtues, and, and you listen carefully, you do not attain unto them. You do not deserve these qualities. 
They're not, they're not for a chosen few. If you are a Christian, you are entitled to these by the new birth if you've been saved. But here's the catch. You have to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You have to be walking with God. You have to know God. Now, look at, look at the verse again. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ. Now, I'm going to define these in a moment. Consolation is in Christ. Are you in Christ? Then you, you can console people. Any comfort in love. And the text implies that comfort comes from Christ. You see, he, Jesus Christ, God, and the Holy Spirit, the Godhead, are all consolers, and they're all comforters. And when you got saved, the Holy Spirit indwells you, and He gives you the desire and the ability to do this. You already have the want to, but when you surrender to Him, He gives you the ability to console and to comfort. And then fellowship, look at this, of the Spirit. I fellowship with God and through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit ministers to me. He enables me not only to fellowship with God, but to fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ. And He will talk to me. By the way, the word fellowship means to have in common. We have the blood of Christ in common. It has cleansed us. He has saved us. We have the same book, the same Father. And the Bible says, of the Spirit. And then it says, bowels and mercies. And once again, that implies that this comes from the Holy Spirit. Listen, this is a supernatural life. Unity is a work of the Holy Spirit in us. It is not the absence of conflict. Well, Brother Rick, you just don't know my family. It's not the absence of, you're going to have conflict. Every couple has conflict. Every parent-child relationship has conflict. Brothers and sisters, in this room, you're going to have conflict with other people in the church. So what do you do? You, if you go to another church, that same person is there. They just may be older or have another face or be of another sex. That's why you see somebody and automatically, you, I don't like them because they remind you of another person or they walk like them and you don't even know them because they've hurt you. Because unity is not an absence of conflict, but how you handle it and the kind of people that are involved in it. You don't have to fight with everybody. You, you don't have to pull your sword out every time. You don't have to win every time. Now let's look at these words. And, and I prayed and asked God to help me to live this way. And I prayed for you this morning that, that you would get this. This is so, so hugely important. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ. What is consolation? This is something, this is who God is. He's a consoler. And he offers consolation to you. Let me tell you what it is. It's a compound word. That means there's two words joined together to make one word. And in the Latin, it means con means with. And solari means to soothe. S-O-O-T-H-E, to soothe with. You know what it means to have 
consoling words, soothing words. Consolation means to soothe, listen carefully, with your words, with your presence, and with your actions. Now, why would you need to soothe? Because someone is in distress. Someone is in grief. Someone is suffering. And they need your gentleness. There's a verse, I think it's in Psalm 18. David said this, he's talking to God. And he said, thy gentleness hath made me great. He said, God, your gentleness to me has made me great. Your consolations have made me great. The way you speak to me, the way you you soothe me with your presence, with your words, with your actions. Now, you know what the opposite of that is? The opposite of soothing with words? It's bringing distress with your presence. Upsetting with your presence. Agitating with your words. Agitating with your actions. You know, some people make the situation worse with their presence and with their words. Now, if you if you have a if you're an extrovert, you may struggle with this. And introverts have the same problem; they just don't talk as much. They're just as much of a sinner, but they don't talk as much. And so, you really have to guard this and ask God, as the psalmist says, is, is to put a put a watch, set a watch before my lips. That's a prayer, Psalm one forty one, and the watch is the Holy Spirit. Lord, help me. Help me soothe with, help me. And by the way, the Holy Spirit does this for you. The Father does this for you. The Lord Jesus Christ does this for you. He soothes you. Oh, if you knew His heart. All, all of these words, these four words, they're part of the Godhead. I have to clean up a lot of messes. I take that back. I have to clean up messes, not a lot. When we had a Christian school, I cleaned up messes all the time because of people's unthoughtfulness and sometimes of my own. Every day, every conversation, you choose the words you speak. Some of them are neutral. Some of them agitate. And some of them are soothing. And I'll tell you something. When, when you soothe, when you're gentle, people are attracted to that. But also it keeps you from bringing up unnecessary issues. Now, everybody has an uncle that when he comes to something, it may not be an uncle, it may be an aunt. But it's like, oh, when, when are they going home? It's just all the time. You say, well, I... I don't have that person in my family. It might be you. You need need to learn to soothe. This is biblical. This is what the Bible says. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ. And he's talking about unity. Now, you can have an organizational charge, but if you're a grump, it's not going to help. Unity is not an accident, but a byproduct of being intentional and walking 
with God. I used to tell our staff, I said, now, when you come up on a fire and somebody's mad and they're upset and the secretaries haven't answered the phone here, and about once or twice a year I'd remind them, I'd say, everywhere you go, you got two buckets. And you come up on that, you got a bucket of water and you got a bucket of gasoline. And you get to choose which bucket you're going to put on there. And I want you to put a bucket of water on the fire. Don't put gasoline on there. Put some water on it. A soft answer turns away wrath. You know, secular people know this. When they train these people on the front lines that deal with people that are angry and irate customers, they teach them to speak in measured tones. They're supposed to, anyhow. And in soft tones. It's a biblical principle. This, this helps with unity. Later on, you'll, you'll be glad you did. I remember uh, uh, four of my children have gone to Christian colleges. You have a Christian college. They have rules. They have expectations. They have standards. And it's not quite like the military. It's not like that. But it's different. Now, I went to Christian college. I loved it. Didn't have any problems with it. Uh, now, when I went, we didn't have televisions. I'd be gone from home for two months. I hadn't seen a television in two months. Now, we had the World Series or something. They'd set it up. And we'd watch the World Series or something. But I, I would come home for the weekend, and I'd see the television. I'd look at that thing. I'd say, wow. Because you, I had been away from it for so long. But it didn't, it didn't bother me. I didn't think, well... This stupid liberal school. I didn't think that. I, I probably made me make better grades. One of, one of my kids in that particular environment uh, made a bad decision. It wasn't a sinful decision. They didn't violate the Bible. They didn't sin against God. But they broke one of the school rules. It was a rule I would not have broken. And so they called me. They said, Dad, here's, here's what happened. They informed me of it. I did not console them. There were no, it was not soothing words. There was no unity. I did have enough sense not to talk immediately. I've always tried to do that, just to back up. But after a while, I, I just didn't know what to say, finally. What in the world were you thinking? What are you doing? And, and, and I was harsh. And I hung up the phone. And then about an hour and a half later or so, I sent a text. I said, I know you're in class or you're doing something, but I was wrong. I was wrong in my tone. I was wrong in my spirit. And I own that, and I want you to forgive me. And I'll call you this afternoon, and we'll talk. But I want you to know that I'm deeply, deeply sorry. Now, this is not a message on restitution, but here's what I'm telling you. When we have these words that are disruptive, we say, yeah, but I'm right. Well, you can do right in the wrong way. And, and our children 
remember those words for a long time. Consolation. Notice again in verse 1, if any comfort of love. The word comfort means to, to bring comfort by personal presence. So I'm going to comfort you by being with you, by sitting with you. Now I want you to notice there that it is a comfort of love. It's born of love. Now there's different words in the Bible for, you know this, uh, for love. This is the word agape. This is the love of God. This is, this is the word that means that I have no expectations. I'm the giver. I'm not, I'm not receiving anything. This is a comfort of love. Here's what it means is I show up because I love you. I'm just going to be there. By the way, one, one of the words in the New Testament for comfort means to, to, if I'm comforting you, you are borrowing my strength. And if I comfort you, I loan you my strength. And so the comfort of love, which we, which we get, the Bible says, from Christ, and this is what God does. He just shows up for us because He loves us. And sometimes you just, you just have to be there. I've told you the story many times about when my grandfather died and when I was 13. And I was just, you know, we talk about consolation. I, I was inconsolable, crying, hurting. I was named after him. We were very close. My grandmother was busy. She was on the phone. The ambulance had gotten there. Melanie was over here crying. Hoss was upset. My mom was helping my grandmother. We were by ourselves. About 30 minutes after the fact on that Saturday morning before Labor Day in September 1971, I looked up and walked through the door was uh, Mac Smith. Mac was my fourth grade teacher of, of years ago before no longer I was now a teenager we used to go camping with him and his family every year and I looked up at him with just broken eyes and broken heart he did not listen he did not say a word to me Matt came over to me and he just stood by me I had my head bowed and he just put his strong he was a strong man construction man had big hands and, and he just put his hand on my shoulder and I borrowed his strength I've never forgotten that until the day that I die I will never forget that in a moment of weakness he, he strengthened me one of my pastors had a had an issue where one of his staff members was creating more or less of an insurrection and it was hurting him. He had information that he could not tell the church and would not tell the church. And he had shared with me. And I was out. I was out. I was gone. And it was destroying him. People were saying things about him. But he could not share with them what he knew. And he said, Rick, I went downstairs into the den. And I just sat there. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know where to go. I was so defeated. And he said, my wife came down and, and she just sat down by me and didn't say anything. She just put her hand on my knee and we just sat there for an hour. 
And he said, I never forgot that. See, I think sometimes we say, well, I, I don't know what to say. Just show up. I show up. Because it's a comfort of love because of love. Consolation, comfort, and then fellowship. The fellowship of the Spirit, verse 1. The word fellowship means to share. God created us to, to share our hearts with people, to share resources with people. You see, friendship, friendship is, is give and take. Now, when you become a friend, you're, you're more concerned with giving. It's not like, okay, I'm in this to see what I can get. But the truth is, in a friendship, it, it ends up being a give and take thing, not a receiving. Let me say receiving. That's a better word for it. God created you to be in, in your, a blood family, but also in a Christian family. And there's going to be times when you contribute, and there's going to be times when you receive. And when you're, listen, when you're absent, those relationships, it's easy to leave your earthly family. Some of you don't fellowship with your physical brothers and sisters. You haven't talked to them in weeks and months. You know, I miss my sister terribly. I mean, you have a lot in common. You never call them. Are your parents still alive? Are your children still alive? You need to connect with them. God made us and created us. It's what people are looking for. When you're absent, these relationships, it's easy to break unity. And fellowship in the Holy Spirit. This comes the Holy Spirit put us in the in the body of Christ. And He enables me to, to get past petty things and give people margin. A secular man wrote this, I believe, but I think he has some wisdom. He said that uh, try to understand before being understood. Because I think, what, 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 no, I want them to understand me. Well, try to understand before being understood. Jeremiah, I think it's Jeremiah 3, 15 or somewhere around there. That's not it, but it's in the book of Jer- or Ezekiel three fifteen. Ezekiel said, I sat where they sat. He's talking about the people. They were, they were in bondage. I sat where they sat. You ever sit where people sit? A week from tomorrow, uh, it will be four years since my mom died. And it will be 20 years since my brother lost his wife. And I sit where he sits sometimes. Taking care of himself. and I mean, Paula just set my tie out. She ironed my shirt. She, I mean, wow. Listen, it, it, cultivate, it cultivates consolation, it, it, it cultivates comfort, and it also cultivates a desire to fellowship and minister. So when we get together, it's not just shallow fellowship. It's, it's I, I want to bring something to the table. I, I want to help. Some of you precious people here, I love you so much. Some of you teenagers, you've been through stuff. When I see you, my my heart yearns for you. Charles Spurgeon said this. He says, some Christians try to go to heaven alone in solitude. 
But believers are not compared to lions, bears, or other animals that wander alone. But those who belong to Christ are sheep in this respect. They love to get together because sheep go in flocks. And and so do God's people. Isn't that good? Sheep go in flocks. Here's my favorite paragraph on a friend. I want you to listen to this. George Eliot wrote this. This is terrific. George Eliot said, Friendship is the inexpressible comfort of feeling safe with a person. Safe. Having neither to weigh thoughts or measure words, but to pour them all out just as they are, chaff and grain together, knowing that a faithful hand will take and sift them and keep what is worth keeping and then with a breath of kindness blow the rest away. Isn't that good? Because they love you. And the Father does this. And the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit does this. We complain and gripe. And He said, that's my son. That's my daughter. We shouldn't do that, but He loves us. Wow. And then this last expression, and we'll be finished here. Verse 1, their bowels, compassions, and mercies. Bowels and mercies. These are tender expressions. And you'll see the, the conjunction there, bowels and mercies, because they're closely related. Now, obviously, we don't use the term bowels, but it's used in the Bible a lot. It's used in English literature a lot. Now, follow me. In the cultures of that day, and I've taught you this before, it's been a while, the stomach area was associated with the the feelings of your emotions. And it included mercy, tenderness, compassion. And so in the Bible, when the word bowels was used, it was a figure of speech. For example, when we say heartfelt, I, I, I had heartfelt compassion. That's what it meant, heartfelt. But you feel it in here. It's in my gut, man. It's just coming from right here. That's what it's saying. It's a word for sincere. This is heartfelt. I really mean this. But watch this. It's bowels, and the word mercies there means means pity. It's compassion, but it's actions. So bowels has to do with the affection, and mercies has to do with kind actions. You know, I know some people that say, well, I, I'm just not a feeler. I, I, I'm a doer. Well, that's good. That's a good thing to do. You need to do both, though. You need to cultivate that. Uh, move back. Look at chapter 1 of Philippians, if you would. Look at verse 8. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 8. I want you to notice one place that Paul uses this word here in Philippians 1.8. He said to this church, God is my record, how greatly I long after you all. Now look at this, in the bowels of Jesus Christ. Isn't, it appears strange, doesn't it? But it's not. He says, I love you. And he says, I'm in prison, but you're, you're not far away from me. In fact, in chapter 1, he said, I have you in my prayers. I have you in my heart. And he said, I, I love you like Jesus loves us. In a, watch this, in a tender way. Not just, hey, I love you. I think about you, and I weigh you, and I care for you. 
I'm telling you, when you when you have this kind of affection and this kind of compassion and mercy, you're not going to split. You're not leave your spouse. You're not going to leave your kids. You you can't walk away. Francis Schaeffer said this. He said, "Biblical. Listen carefully. Biblical orthodoxy without compassion is surely the ugliest thing in the world." Wow. Biblical orthodoxy without compassion is surely the ugliest thing in the world. We need both. We need the truth, but Jesus came full of grace and with truth. Now, you can be a unit and not be in unity. You can be a group and you can have organizational unity. You can be on the team but not have unity. And you can be in church, or you can be in a family, and not have unity. But the place to start is whoever's listening to me this morning. I plead with you. Don't say, well, I, I, wish, I wish my mom was here. I, I wish my uncle. No, it, it's you. And, and start practicing these qualities. But you don't do it by jot, jotting them down. It, it, it can be a focus, but ask God to reproduce what is already in you. He's in you and He has these qualities. All of these qualities. A heart of consolation. A heart of comfort. A heart of fellowship. A heart of tenderness and passion and pity. These, this is the heart of Jesus. And when you came to Christ, all of these qualities are in you. Some of them you need to... They got dirt on them. And, and do away with your criticism. Do away with your harshness. Do away with your negativity. I thought about 9-1-1, September the 11th, 2001. Al-Qaeda attacked our nation. Our nation literally came together. Those of you that are old enough, you remember this. Men out there on the Capitol, we had, we had liberals that didn't even believe in God. Hated America. They were out there singing, God bless America. It was very evident for a while. But it didn't last. Because it was union, but it wasn't unity. And I'm going to tell you why. First of all, there was a, a, there was a paradigm issue but there's another reason why, is these qualities weren't evident. These qualities were not evident. You know what I do when I meet somebody that doesn't believe like I do? I don't say, well, you, well you're wrong. You see my body language right now? I'm leaning back, my arms are crossed. You think they're going to listen to me? Nope. Well, it's the truth. <laughs> okay, they're not going to listen to me. I lean into him. I said, tell me, tell me what you believe. Because I know the truth. I can tell me, tell me how you came to that conclusion. Okay. Let me, let me share some things, my perspective on that. And I'm gracious about it. And I earn a hearing by the platform of consolation, comfort, fellowship, and tenderness, and credibility, rather than just coming in like a sledgehammer. 
Now, these heart attitudes must be present if there would be organic unity. Now, let me repeat myself. Over time, a group in disunity will implode. And over time, your family, this church, your brothers and sisters, whoever, whatever your issue, the Holy Spirit's talking about it right now, it's going to implode. But rather than blaming them, say, okay, what can I do? Because God wants you to be the pursuer. Jesus sought lost people, and he was a reconciler. I read this interesting story about a man that went to a mega church to a conference. And when he pulled up there, there it was packed. You know, these mega conferences they have, or mega churches, they have these, these parking lots that are like malls. You've been to them, some of them. You know, they're just huge parking lots. And so, you know, they have these, these light poles and so forth. And, um, and so when he pulled up, he, he noticed that uh, each light post had a different name on it. And on one of them, it said, Life. And on another one, it said patience. And another one, it said grace. He's walking in, and then on the way out, he started leaving. And another one, it said love and faithfulness. And then he realized, he said, you know, this is what they do at a mall, but rather than say one, two, three, four, five, six, they put some Christian words up there to remember that I'm in the faithfulness line. He said, well, that's clever. But then he learned something else. When he left for the second session, it was much like the first session. People were cutting him off. They were in a hurry to get home. Tempers were flaring. And he said in his comment, how quickly the love we have for our brothers and sisters can disappear in a parking lot. Where, where are you tested in your unity? It may not be in church. It may be in church. Where, where is God putting this to the test? Because God will, God will polish you until you reflect the heart and me. Until we reflect the heart of His Son, Jesus Christ. And these qualities, consolation, comfort of love, and fellowship, and compassions, and mercies, and affections, they reflect the heart of God. Would you bow in prayer with me?